So my title today is how to be, how to be happy, hashtag blessed. Seven people will know what that is. So uh, there's this hashtag, this conversation that's been really kind of taken over the Twitter, Instagram, social media world for the past few years. So somebody, so as, as an example, somebody will go on like a lavish vacation and with pursed lips take a picture of themselves and say, God is so good, hashtag blessed. Okay, so they'll, they'll put a picture of themselves in Italy on the internet and, it's, and they're acting like they're giving God glory, but they want us to know they're in Italy. That's what's happening, all right, okay. Y'all must be doing it so you're not amen and yet. I know you're going to come with me here in just a second. So we'll see today that being what it looks like to actually be blessed. Okay, you can understand this word as we look at Matthew chapter 5 today. You can understand the word blessed as really close to our English word happy. Those two words are kind of close together. And so <clears throat> happiness is the great subject facing mankind, right? Like everybody on the face of the planet wants to be happy, right? Yet, you know, and in the face of Great technological advancement. Think of how far things have come the past few decades. More, you know, longer lives, more comfort than ever before, more jobs, all these things going on. Study after study shows, research bears out that Americans and the world at large are less happy than generations before. It's kind of crazy. Every person in the world is looking for happiness, and it's kind of tragic to see how many people, most people, go about seeking that happiness. Most, the vast majority of people seek happiness in ways that actually produce misery. People want to be happy, but they look to things to make them happy that never, ever will. And this is where the true deceitfulness of sin comes in, okay, where uh, sin makes us think that it's going to make us happy, but it leaves us emptier and, and less happy than before. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, here's the way to happiness. I got it. Here it is. Follow me. Embody my way and follow me. And before we even read the text this morning, I want to go ahead and give you the underlying main idea throughout uh, the, the, the 12 verses that we'll look at today, and it is character comes before conduct. Character comes before conduct. After all, you're a human being, not a human doing. I know it's cheesy. I was really proud of that. Okay, so <laughs> doing flows from being. We know that. So yes, there, there'll be plenty of points of application today, how to, we'll do all of that. But what you need to understand before we even really get going is that Jesus wants to change you from the inside out. Okay, he'll take you however he finds you. That's great. And then he wants to lead you into this blessed life that we look at here in the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon of all time. The commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are not to be looked at like laws that we have to keep in order to become a child of God or requirements of becoming part of God's kingdom. No, these are you know, a description of, of who we can become after we've already followed God. It's really important to understand as we get into how to be happy. The only application for you, if you're not a Christian in here, is to become a Christian today. Okay, you, you can't, if you're not a Christian, you can't just add a few of Jesus' teachings onto your life and expect them to make you happy. You have to be connected to him first. So that's the flow of the Christian life. You are connected to Jesus, you get, you know, you get saved, you become a Christian, and then he begins to change your character, and then we see it in your conduct. That's the flow. So these verses describe a holy life that necessarily follow uh, somebody who's already been saved. So let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and and utter all kinds of evil stuff against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were even before you. And it's fitting that... Blessed are the poor in spirit comes first because it really is the key to all that follows. Uh, There's a very definite order to the Beatitudes. These are called the Beatitudes. So there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. Okay, this is the very fundamental characteristic of the Christian. All the other blessed attributes are, in a sense, a result of this very first one. Being poor in spirit means emptying yourself, while the rest of the Beatitudes we'll look at really have to do with the display of fullness. Okay, so you must first become empty before Christ can fill you. The call of Christ is first a call to empty yourself. Uh, Being poor in spirit has everything to do with being humble in spirit. That's what that means. And these lessons that we'll look at today, they're all things that we start out on a you know, novice level and then they get deeper and deeper in our hearts as we surrender to Christ more and more over the years. You know, I could spend the rest of my time telling you of different ways that I've learned that I need to be humble. Okay, but one thing that comes to mind, and I've shared a very small part of this before, but before we came here for a couple of years, me and my wife thought we were going to go plant a church. So we were, you know, looking at all these different cities that we could plant a church in, you know, and it's a pretty, pretty hard thing to do. So we're looking at all these things. We, you know, we visited Philly and Chicago and all these places like, God, where do you want us to plant and build a new church? And one night we were talking about it, and my wife said, hey, but what about San Diego? What if we planted a church in San Diego? And I go, yeah, you know, maybe we can do that. There's no famous pastor there. <laughs> and I can smile about it now, but in the moment, uh, she goes, why do you say it like that? I go, oh, maybe there's more than, to my desire of being in ministry than just God's fame. Maybe, maybe I want some retweets in this deal as well. And so as, as we walk into the Christian life, it isn't this one-time thing that we learn how to be humble and then all of a sudden the rest of our lives, you know, we, we learn these lessons over and over and they get deeper and, and deeper. You know, maybe a life of humility, of pouring yourself out, isn't what you expected as a Christian. You, you, you know, a life of quiet humility isn't what you were thought you were getting into. And expectations are really important, right? So recently, this didn't happen here in another state, uh, there was this movie theater was showing a kid's movie, and so who attends a kid's movie? Typically kids and their parents filed in to see, you know, to have a good laugh, have a good time, and the movie theater messed up, and they showed, so what do you typically show when you go to see a kid's movie? What kind of previews typically lead in? Other kid's movies. You go see Aladdin this weekend, Secret Life of Pets 2, Toy Story 4 previews. I have kids, so I know what's coming out this summer. Okay, so that's typically what happens. Again, the movie theater messed up. And they showed the preview for two horror films in a theater packed with kids and families, right? What a nightmare, right? So, so you know, the, the expectations weren't met. So, and I don't, you know, I don't know what you were expecting when you became a Christian. I'm not trying to, I, I see the flaw in my illustration right now that I'm not likening becoming a Christian to seeing a horror film preview, okay? But uh, maybe you were expecting something different than a life of quiet humility, Maybe that's not what you were expecting. Maybe you got into Christianity thinking that God's going to bless you in a financial way. You're never going to have anything go wrong in your life. But the Christian life is one of humility. That's the essence of it. It's realizing that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. Right? And it's, almost, it's really the, antith- in the antithesis of American bravado in almost every single way. So as we talk about being poor in spirit, okay, what I don't want you to picture in your mind is Eeyore. You guys remember Eeyore? Okay, so Eeyore, no matter what was happening in, your, in his life, he would always mope around, always 
you know, always down, always not cool with what's happening, just sort of down. That's not what being poor in spirit is, okay? So neither does it mean to be shy or nervous or insecure. To be poor in spirit means to be lacking in pride. It is this really deep consciousness knowing that I am nothing without my friend Jesus. That's what being poor in spirit means. This attitude is directly opposite from what the world preaches to you every single day. We took our kids to Disney earlier this year. Had a great time. We're Disney people. We love it. And so at one night we saw this light show. You know, they do the fireworks, the light show. It was this amazing experience. And the narrator ended that light show by saying, you're the key to unlocking your own magic. I'm like, man, what a burden. You know, like, but that's what all the world preaches to you. Believe in yourself. Man, express yourself. Realize the power that's in you. That's what the world preaches. And then Jesus says, hey, follow me. Just get behind me. Just do what I do. Uh, if you're here today and apart from Christ, if you want your shackles tightened, believe in yourself. But if you want to break free, believe in Jesus today. That's what you need to do if you're, if you're apart from Christ. Because the way of Jesus is the way to live. What Jesus is describing today, this is what leads to true and lasting happiness. Emptying yourself and being poor in spirit. Uh, someone who is poor in spirit uh, is a person who is keenly aware that they are spiritually destitute. They cannot save themselves. One theologian I read said being poor in spirit... Uh, means that you are without pretense before God. You're stripped of self-sufficiency, self-security, and self-righteousness. You know, this realization that, that we are nothing without Jesus, it doesn't make us hang our heads, but it ma- actually makes us lift our heads, right? Because, again, the world says, believe in yourself, but then Jesus says, no, believe in me. I got, the, you know, the world says, you got this, but then our God, the one true God, says, I got this. Just, I got you. Just follow me. Who is happier? The humble person or the prideful person? We, we know. Thank you for your participation. That's right. The humble people. You're like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. uh, the, because over and over we see, okay, the way of the world leads to exhaustion and death, but the way of Jesus leads to freedom and life. We see it over and over. So one observation we have from the text today is, to be happy, I must pursue humility. Actively in my life, I got to go after humility. I must embody the humility of Jesus. Uh, see, in God's kingdom, the humble people are the happy people. You know what is the most exhausting thing in the world? To prove to people how you got it all together. To prove to people how cool you are, how self-reliant you are, how you just got it going on. That's really exhausting. See, in God's kingdom, that's not needed. In God's kingdom, we just admit our faults and we give all the glory and honor to God. Right? This really is a really difficult posture to maintain as in, in our time and space in the world, you know, uh, I really do think it's a difficult thing to maintain a posture of humility because even when we talk about humility, we will go, you know, <laughs> my post went viral. I mean, it's just so humbling. You know? I mean, I, I got another promotion at work, another promotion. I mean, it is just so humbling. You know, this is how we even talk about it. We, deep down, we really think and know that we did it, these accomplishments in our life. So, What does true humility look like in a look-at-me world? How do we pursue humility in a world that is so brazenly me-centered, pointing at ourselves all the time, individuals? So i got a couple of quick things. Of course, we could do 100 different things here, but two things I have down. You need real friends who who love you and who can call you out, okay? Friends who love you, man. Friends who call just to encourage you, call you just to talk tell you they love you. Man, it's okay if we tell each other we love you. I love you. Okay. We can do that. Friends who are really, they're there for you. They're there with you in the ins and outs of the life. Okay. So you need that. Also friends who can call you out. Friends that go, hey man, since we've been at the gym, you've taken seven pictures of your calves. I need you to chill. Hey sis, that's your ninth 
selfie that you've posted with pursed lips this month, I gotta cut you off. We need friends that can do that, okay? And so then the, the question becomes, you know, as, as students, it can, it can be difficult to find good friends. As college students, it can be difficult to find good friends. But as adults, it, it's hard for whatever reason to find really good friends. And so if that's you, if you're struggling to find good friends who really love you and, and they're willing to call you out, man, join a connect group. That's how we do it here. In this room, this space isn't really built for connection with each other. It's built for connection to God. And then there's smaller rooms all around this campus, and we all have homes that we can meet in, and we can connect with each other. So if you're, having, if you're struggling with finding real friends in this church, that's my job. I mean, I get, this is cool to do, but my job is to support the staff so that they win and then connect you to each other. So let me do that for you. Let me connect you with some other people who you can walk and do life with. And if I do that, if you connect you with the connect group, the, really way, the way to connect is not to go to your lake house half the time and connect group half the time. You really got to go. I didn't expect an amen there either. Okay, so the second thing I would, I would tell you to pursue humility is spend time every day telling God that he's God. Really simple thing. So one, one pastor I read said that whenever I pray for God's kingdom to come, I'm praying for my kingdom to fall. It's important thing, you know, so you just wake up, kneel by your bed. As soon as you wake up and pray, God, today is your day. More than I want money, more than I want my agenda, more than I want anything today, God, I want you today. God, you are the king of my life. And as you begin to pray that every day, as you begin to tell God that he's God, you realize that you're not. And that's a good thing. Because here's the, here's the reality. I'm not God. Okay, so if, if I think that I am, my life's going to be all kind of messed up. And so to realize reality ends up being a good thing. So to go, hey, God, you're God today. Let, let, let me follow in your steps today, today, today. As the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, nothing in my hand I bring only to the cross I cling. That's the Christian life. That's how God's kingdom works. It's really not about us. And that really is a good thing. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, this word blessed doesn't mean happiness in the mundane sense that maybe we think about it, but it is this deep inner sense of joy, this unshakable joy that isn't affected by circumstances or whatever. It's unshakable. The, the wording of the second beatitude really is always striking to me. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Doesn't that kind of strike you as, as odd? Uh, the mourning Jesus is talking about is a spiritual mourning. It is this it's having sorrow over your sin. It's this idea of your soul being pressed, okay? God says that those who feel and sense sorrow over their sin, this spiritual mourning, they will be comforted. Have you really ever come to a place in your life where you've mourned your sin? In the Bible, Belt, that's a question we really need to ask. Have we really ever really mourned our sin? You know, one of the statements that I really have to endure as a pastor, one of my least favorite things that people say is that they'll go, well, you know, I don't regret anything I've done in my life. I don't regret the bad things I've done because it's made me who I am today. Okay. I get what they're trying to say. I really do. But the world taught you that. Okay. That's not a Christian idea. All right. Uh, what society says is having no regrets means total freedom. That's what they're trying to teach you. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty here. I'm, I'm saying it because Jesus died to take the guilt of your sin. You don't have to excuse your own sin. Jesus is waiting and ready to do it, okay? And, you know, when you try to excuse your own sin, oh, I don't regret that, I don't regret. When you try to do that, it's not actually forgiven either. You, you can't forgive your own sin. That's not how it works. Those who mourn over their sin, those who repent and turn from their sin, they will be comforted. So much 
of what the world preaches to you is regret nothing, man. Don't be sorry for your sin. Forget your troubles, man. Move on from your mistakes. But that's not how you were created to function. Sin is real. And it has devastating consequences both in your life and those all around you. And the point of this isn't, the point of mourning your sin isn't just to rub your nose in the dirt and make you feel bad. The point is, your sin is so bad that Jesus had to, God had to kill his own son. There are real consequences. And the great promise is right there. As soon as we talk about mourning, those who mourn will be comforted. Immediately and without qualification, repent of your sin and you will find hope, joy, satisfaction, forgiveness, all these things. That word mourn that Jesus used here in verse 4. Yeah, verse 4. It's a really vivid term in the Greek. It's loaded with meaning. It was most of the time used whenever somebody was mourning uh, uh, recently some, you know, somebody in their family or a close friend died. It's this intense mourning, not some kind of superficial regret, but this intense remorse. So true repentance makes no excuses. It offers no rationalizations. It grieves for sin. So from this verse, we observe that to be happy, in order to be happy, I must mourn my sin. Can't skip past that. Got to do that. Jesus promised that that he will comfort the mourners. And so what comes from that is that the sinner's sorrow is quickly replaced with joy. The sinner's sorrow is replaced with praise for the one true king who has accepted the guilt of their sin and given them forgiveness. It's a wonderful thing. And here's the best thing, honestly, I think, about confessing your sin and, and, and repenting of your sin before God is that you don't get what you deserve, right? So in God's kingdom, one sheep gets more attention than 99, in God's kingdom, one-hour workers are paid the same as 12-hour workers. And in God's kingdom, the widow's might, the widow's pennies are worth more than a huge sum of money, right? Grace is terrible math. So let's enjoy it. Let's confess our sins before God, turn and mourn our sins before God and enjoy his grace. What do you say? Yeah, all right. You're like, yeah, actually, that makes sense. Verse 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't use the word meek very much, uh, but meekness is not weakness. Let's not misunderstand that. Uh, this is not some passive attitude, you know. Uh, you know, Jesus was meek, but he got aggressive at times. I mean, he flipped some tables in the temple, okay? He called some religious powerful guys, you brood of vipers, okay? Jesus didn't play around. So meekness is not passive. It's not being a pansy, right? Meekness is not this flabby, easygoing, weak thing. It's meekness is compatible with great strength, great power, great authority, a meek person, the, the difference is a meek person is confident in God's strength, not their own. They're confident that God is going to come through. So we see in verse 12, whenever somebody throws, whenever the haters abound and somebody makes fun of you for being a Christian or makes fun of you for believing the Bible, whatever it is, we don't even have to slash their tires. We don't have to do that. We can just step back and go, you know what, I forgive you, I love you, I'm praying for you because we know who we are because of whose we are. We're meek. We can be meek because we have this humble, quiet confidence about us. Again, not in what we can do, but in who he is. It's a, it's a great way to live. As the old saying goes, meekness is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's really all it is. Meekness is the emancipation from self-concern altogether. So meekness is just you're content. As Paul says, content in every situation. Um, and as, you, as we look through these, all the Beatitudes, they're not natural tendencies for us. You know, like uh, being pure in heart is not really natural for us. We're the opposite of that. Being poor in spirit, we're normally high and mighty. We're not meek, we're normally arrogant in our hearts. And so we become these characteristics by grace alone and Christ alone. 
So Jesus' sermon here is not a try harder to be better sermon. His sermon is surrender and follow me sermon. Charles Hodge, love this quote. He said, the doctrines of grace humble a man without degrading him. It's not God's heart. And exalt a man without inflating him. That's what God is trying to do uh, with you today. And I want you to see the progression of these beatitudes as well. So at first you're poor in spirit. You empty yourself, you're humble. And then you see the darkness of your sin and you mourn and you turn from your sin. And then we're able to treat people with meekness. Right? You see the progression? So it starts in the heart and then it flows out to our conduct. Being comes before doing. Let me talk through a couple of more verses before we come back and land the plane at verse 6 today. Uh, Verse 7 says, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, mercy, merciful is being quick to forgive, it's being compassionate. John Calvin wrote on this verse, and he said, Compassionate people are blessed because they're not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but they take on other people's troubles to help them in distress, freely join them in their time of trial, and as it were, to get, it, to get right into their situation. He said, merciful people gladly expend themselves for others. This is who we are. You know, this is why we sponsor 3,000 plus compassion children as a church, because we are showing God's mercy. This is why so many of you are fostering children. You know how, you know, not because it's easy, but because it's hard is why you do it. So many precious boys and girls all all around our city that need a home, need a family, and you open up your home and say, hey, whatever I can do to to serve the Lord, that's what you're doing. Quick side note on uh, foster care. So about 10 days ago, my wife and I, we were invited to this like house party in Asheville with a lot of city officials and like the chief of police was there, HHS, DSS, all these organizations that have to do with foster care. I was, it was cool to be there. And then, but over and over, what was the best part about it over and over, we go, hey, I'm Matt, it's Courtney, you know, from Biltmore Church. They go, oh my gosh, Biltmore Church, thank you for all you're doing for foster care. Over and over, they kept going, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. One lady said, earlier today in a meeting, in a city meeting, they go, hey, we were talking about your church and just so thankful for all that you're doing. So your reputation is preceding you and all, in, all around the city with regard to foster care and all that you're doing. One lady even said, hey, we got to hire another person. We got to hire another staffer because y'all are sending us, Biltmore Church is sending us so many families to license for foster care that we got to hire somebody else to help push the licenses across. So we are making a difference. It's amazing. We are making a dent in this crisis. Of course, we need more help. Okay, so buildmorechurch.com slash foster. You can always jump in. In small ways and big ways, there's all kind of ways to get involved. So we give our money to sponsor kids in, in Ecuador through compassion. We foster children. We go serve at Carolina Rescue Mission. We do all these things outside of ourselves because we're showing God's mercy. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. And I, I want to point out something really important here too, okay? So notice Jesus... Jesus didn't climb up on the mountain and go, hey, hey, hey everybody, I'm going to say some stuff, but the next 12 verses or so, it's just for pastors, y'all tune out. Hey, this is just for leaders, so y'all listen to the part in just a minute about being salt and light, but this first part's for leaders. That's not what he got here. This, this list of, is what he expects for all Christians, all followers of his, to embody these things. And he also didn't go, okay, hey, this section, I need y'all to be meek. Over here, I need y'all to be poor in spirit. Okay, watching online at the lake, I need y'all to be merciful this week. No, that's not what he does. Okay, he expects all Christians to embody all of this as we follow in his way. And again, Jesus says, the merciful will receive mercy. So I think it's so, uh, I drive a 2009 Toyota Avalon. Okay, 
Blessed, okay. So I know people don't dab any more students, okay. So anyway, so that's what I drive. So the reason I tell you that is before I got a Toyota Avalon, I don't think I'd ever seen one before. Like, yeah, I don't think I'd ever really noticed one. But what happened as soon as I owned a Toyota Avalon? All, all of a sudden, all over the road, same color, same make, same model. And I'm like, what in the world? The same day I bought this from my uncle, a few hundred other people bought the same car. No, that's not what happened. Obviously, they were there all along. I just didn't even see them. So as soon as I got a different perspective, I started seeing things differently. I think mercy is like that. We start showing mercy. We, we serve the homeless. We do these things. And all of a sudden, we see the mercy that's been around us the whole time. We we, maybe we're a little ungrateful for the food we have and for the house that we have. And then all of a sudden we start, you know, sponsoring a compassion kid and we start being a little, we, we start seeing merciful, we start seeing mercy, excuse me, all around us, right? So we, we think maybe the world's out to get us and then we start helping a foster family. We take them a meal once a week. We, we make Walmart runs for the foster parents so they can serve their foster kids. And all of a sudden we start seeing mercy all around us. I think that's kind of how it works. Look back at verse six. We'll land here today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst are metaphors for this really intense longing. And some of this meaning is kind of lost on us because we've never really been hungry and thirsty. And as modern Westerners, we really never have been. But all of Jesus' audience had been. They knew firsthand that the painful cravings that came with really you know, being hungry and really they were very familiar with that. In fact... Um, the verb Jesus used was normally used to show persistent hunger that maybe came as a result from siege or famine or some sort of national disaster or national distress, which all of them would have been through in his audience. So the ancients knew of hunger so intensely that they would have done or given anything to satisfy it. So Jesus wants you to want righteousness the way that starving people want bread. That's how he wants you to want it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to hunger and thirst for righteousness is nothing but longing to be positively holy. You know, sometimes it grieves me. I think we think more about the purity of the chicken we eat than our own personal purity. I think so, we think about so many other things in life than our own personal holiness and really prioritizing our own personal purity, what we look at, what we say. And he says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Satisfied is such a great thing to think about in life. What an idea. So I encourage you to write this verse down somewhere and put it on a post-it note and somewhere around your office. Uh, write it somewhere where you can see a lot this week and keep thinking about, I need to be pursuing righteousness. Now, you could put it on your background or your computer or phone. That would work too. That would be cool. So, uh, but as we see, so people who hunger for their way, oppositely, people who thirst for Instagram likes or people who really just, they thirst and hunger for more convenience in their, in their life, will never be satisfied. That's not how it works. People who hunger uh, and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. We look so many other places for satisfaction in this life. Um, do you really ever get enough money? Do you really think that that uh, affair or that pornography will really satisfy? Do, you really, do we really think that more Instagram followers will, will really finally make us happy? Right? You know, don't let your phone dictate your happiness. In this age, please don't do that. You know, there's this company in Russia, this is a true story, where you can buy three, you can rent a private jet for three hours. It never leaves the ground. You get pictures getting on and off of it and pictures inside. People are doing this for Instagram, right? Trying to seek happiness and seek fulfillment in all these different ways. Well, watching one more episode on Netflix really, a little bit more convenience, will that really do the trick? Finally make you happy. Or even 
trying to satisfy your own soul by doing good things, doing more good deeds, finally give your soul rest. You know, moralism just hands starving people a cookbook. That's all it's really doing in your life if you're trying to. So uh, we're all looking to be satisfied. And Americans are the people of excess. Amen. So we don't just want a good meal. We get stuffed. We don't just watch one more episode of our, we don't just watch one episode of our favorite show. We binge an entire season in one weekend. All right. We're the people of more. I read one story of a wealthy employer. He overheard two of his employees talking. And one of the employees said, man, if if I could just get $10,000, I would be perfectly content. And that would do it. If I could just get $10,000. So the employer said, hey, you know, heard you talking. I've always wanted to meet somebody who's perfectly content. So he wrote him a check for $10,000, handed it to him, walked away. And after he walked away, the employee said to the other, shoot, man, why didn't I say $20,000? You know, that's how our hearts work. Did you know the New Testament has 112 references to being blessed and none of them are connected to material prosperity? Maybe we're looking to the wrong things to satisfy. Just maybe. Forbes magazine devoted its 75th anniversary issue to this question. Why do we feel so bad when we have it so good? Why? There's something to that. Dave Chappelle, he's back now, but at the height of his fame and fortune, young 30s, had his own show. He, just, he had just signed uh, a contract to renew his show, and so making him even more rich, even more famous. And all of a sudden, he vanished, and he went across the world where nobody knew who who he was or why he was there. And so he was asked, hey, why did you do that? Why why did you leave at the height of your fame and fortune? And he said, the higher I go up, for some reason, the less happy I am. So the the world is looking, the culture is looking for life, satisfaction, peace. So where does real happiness, where does true satisfaction come from? Let me tell you a couple ways it doesn't come from, okay? It doesn't come from being beautiful or handsome. I can tell you that on personal experience, okay? (laughs) It ain't tricking if you got it, okay? So you send all these people, you know, trying to build a perfect physique and try to build a perfect body. All their time goes to that. Americans spent some $16 billion on cosmetic surgery last year, right? And so a, re- a survey recently said that 94% of American women wish they were more beautiful. So my question is, if all of a sudden they were, 94% of women want to be more beautiful. They are. Is that really going to fulfill them in a way that they think? In three weeks, in three months, in three years, are they really going to be satisfied with that beauty like they think? I don't think so, right? Uh, pursuing pleasure will not bring lasting life. Uh, before his death, Hugh Hefner, uh, he, he found that he, he had all the money and women and power anybody could ever want. And he was interviewed and he said, and the, the person asked, what's missing in your life? And he said, I want the words and the songs to be true. There's something missing, right? But because if you live for pleasure, you'll never find it. First Timothy says, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Proverbs 27, 20 also says, the eyes of man are never satisfied. They never are. There's this term in psychology today where happiness researchers, that's a thing. How about that for a job title? Okay. There's this term in psychology where uh, happiness researchers call the hedonic treadmill. Okay, so it's a proven fact that all these things that we look to for satisfaction, that as soon as you get a little bit, you got to have a little bit more in order to get that temporary good feeling. So you get a raise, you want another raise. You get 10,000 followers on Instagram, you find yourself soon craving 15,000 followers on Instagram, right? So we keep looking to all of these things to satisfy us, but they're making us hungrier and thirstier, right? Because Jesus is the only one who satisfies That's the answer. That's the whole thing right there. The world shouts, live for yourself. Man, go get rich, sleep around, do whatever you want to do that makes you happy. That's living. 
But what we see over and over and over again is that way it leads to death and despair. And if you choose Jesus, you get life because Jesus is life. My granddad was my home church pastor. Um, and slow burn on the clap, cool. So my, dad, my granddad was my home church pastor. He passed away a few years ago. I've told you that before. And his favorite hymn was As the Deer. It's my favorite hymn now as well. And it, part of it goes like this. As the deer panteth, for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. Lord, you alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. Folks, that's happiness. Not longing for more followers, but thirsting for God. Not hungry for money, but starving for Christ. Right? So from verse 6, we see to be happy, I need to pursue holiness. Actively in my own life, I need to pursue holiness. You want to be happy? Follow the way of Jesus. Be generous with the money that you do have. Forgive people who don't even deserve it. Be patient through adversity. Be kind through your stress. Share the gospel with outsiders. Pursue holiness. And all of a sudden, you'll be satisfied. That's how it works. And listen, death no longer has dominion over you, saint. Okay, this is what makes our religion different from any religion in the world. We don't go to some burial place and worship our founder's remains. We can go anywhere in the world and lift our hands to our king because he is not dead. He is alive. And by the way, I don't, just a quick side note, I don't think that a dead man can save me. If he couldn't save himself, he probably couldn't save a wretch like me. Anyway, so, but Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and hell and the grave, and now he invites us into his better way to become more like him every single day that we're on this earth. He can give you new life. He wants to give you a fresh start. He can save you today. So if you've never turned your life over to Christ, if you've never asked him to come into your heart and save you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer if you're not a Christian. I'm going to lead you in a prayer at the end that you can make that decision today. If you're already a Christ follower, okay, i got a few questions I want you to ask yourself. I want you to set aside, set aside some time, perhaps even today or this week, and I want you to pray and think, okay, what am I really hungry for? Where do I really look for satisfaction? Am I convinced that another job will finally satisfy? And do I just think that getting married and not being single, but getting married is going to finally satisfy? Do I think another marriage is going to satisfy? Empty nesters, do I think that my kids finally living closer is finally going to satisfy me? Do, am I really looking to likes or followers to somehow fulfill me? Do I really think that having more money, do I really... We, keep, we, we always hear that that doesn't make me happy, but do I really look, at, look to that for happiness? So I think my, a higher salary is going to make me happy for more than just a few weeks. Am I more merciful today than I was this time last year? Am I meeker today than I was this time last year? Am I humbler today than I was this time last year? Spend time searching your heart today or this week. And when you find those parts of your life where you're looking to anyone or anything other than God to satisfy. You stay there and mourn over your sin and repent of your sin until you are comforted by God. God does want you to be happy. He just knows more than you and me. And he wants to invite you into his better way so that you can have this blessed life that he's describing.